This morning we'll continue with our study through the Second London Confession. Specifically, I'll be covering Chapter 7, which is entitled, Of God's Covenant. Uh, it's a wonderful subject that I think is foundational, not only in understanding the theology of the Confession, but in properly understanding the theology of the Bible itself. Uh, but before I get into the topic of uh, God's, confession, uh, God's covenant, uh, I'm sure that by now you've recognized that the Second London Confession, the 1689, is very similar to the Westminster Confession and also to the Savoy Declaration. Uh, and therefore, you may see why particular Baptists are often called Reformed Baptists, uh, being that there's, there's much that we have in common theologically with the English Presbyterians and Congregationalists and the overall Reformed tradition. Uh, one of those things is the theological conviction that God, in his wisdom, has chosen to condescend to his creation in the form of covenants. And even though there are some variations between Westminster and the Second London, which we'll look at. The conviction from the Reformed in general is that all mankind have a relationship with God. Everyone has a relationship with God, with stipulations and with consequences. Yet one kind of relationship leads to despair, while another leads to hope. One relationship is based on works, while the other kind of relationship that people have with God is based on grace. Uh, but with that said, I want us to keep that in mind at least, those two concepts, works and grace. Keep that in, keep that in mind as we go through uh, these paragraphs uh, in chapter 7. So let's start with paragraph 1. Uh, can someone read paragraph 1, just the whole thing? The rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their Thanks. So, take a look at that paragraph, and beginning with the first sentence, we see a few things that stand out that I think are very important. First of all, in that paragraph, the confession makes a very important biblical assumption. It states that rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator. Uh, this is to say that aside from getting into covenant language or covenant relationships with God, man, by the mere fact that they were created and are sustained by God, owes God obedience. And this is due obedience to God by virtue of being created by God. And that's it doesn't require a special relationship with God, no kind of covenant relationship with God. For the mere fact that you were created by God, naturally you owe obedience to this creator. <clears throat> God should never have to reward anyone or have any kind of stipulations and say, oh, good job, here's a reward. He doesn't owe anyone a reward. Obedience is due to him by nature. With that said, the confession then says that even though this is the case, there is, and you see that in the first sentence, there is a distance between God and creature that is so great. That's what the confession says there. So what does it mean that the, that the distance between God and creature is so great? Does this mean that God is really, really far away in heaven? 
and we're so far down on earth that we are unreachable? No, that's not what that sentence means. We know from scripture that God is everywhere, so that can't be the case. You see Psalm 139, 8, where it says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there, and if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So, again, we know from scripture that God is omnipresent. And sin has not yet entered into the world in Adam's pre-fall state. So we know that the distance isn't because of sin, or at least not yet in what is being described here in that paragraph. So what is the confession stating when it states that the distance from God and creature are so great? Well, it's addressing the creature-creator distinction. Uh, It's saying that God, being holy, perfect, and immutable, without body, without parts, and without passions, has to voluntarily condescend to our level in some way if he desires to take us beyond a mere creature-creator relationship. If God is planning on doing anything else with us, as far as relationally, he has to condescend at some level. Another way of stating this is that if God desires out of his own good pleasure to reward us for anything good that we do, he would have to do so based on special conditions because naturally he doesn't owe us any rewards, nor can we merit them. But if we had a special relationship with God with special conditions, then rewards is a possibility, you know? You do something good, here's a reward. You do something bad, here's punishment. This is important to understand because as Christians, we often struggle with the concept of rewards given to us by God. How is it that we're even getting rewards for our deeds if we are debtors to God? And anything good that we do is really by the grace of God. We all know this. Therefore, the concept of rewards is difficult for us to understand sometimes. Why would God give us rewards? Again, this same dilemma applies to Adam and Eve, naturally. As creatures, they naturally owe God obedience, so rewards really do not fit the equation. Yet, it is only if God sets up a special covenant, it's another way of saying special uh, pact with them, or something of a relationship where there's stipulations. And these stipulations can be applied within that relationship between those two parties, uh, God and creature. And we see in the first sentence in paragraph one that they, Adam and Eve, could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. So the confession goes on to say that, and because of this, God has been pleased to express this through what? A covenant framework. The idea here stems from a few important principles. First, that Adam was created not only to simply live, based on his nature, just walking around living. He was created also to comply with certain positive laws that God had commanded him to obey. For example, let's look at Genesis 1.28. Can someone read, um, actually, uh, 27 and 28. Can someone read 27 and 28? Thanks. God created man. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the earth of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you. So it's understood that God created man in his image, and the commission to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, subduing it and ruling over it, is an extension of man bearing the image of God. In other words, if man was to bear the image of God, that's what it looks like. God's purpose in having man fill the earth was not merely to populate it, but to fill it with God's image. And this language of image-bearing seen in Genesis would have been understood by the readers at the time of the authorship. This functional view of image is suggested by this practice of the ancient Near East of images of God which were placed throughout certain kingdoms as a way through which the God it represented would manifest his presence. And so if uh, the God that, uh, the, the so-called God, wanted to be known among a people, his presence would be made everywhere, his image would be made everywhere, and uh, so on and so forth. So you see this sort of uh, functional view of image bearing. And later on, at some point, even kings were also understood to bear the image of their God. And therefore, subduing and ruling was also tied to their understanding of image bearing. So again, this concept would have been easily understood by ancient readers. God's image was to cover the earth through his image bearers. Along with this commission, Adam was placed in the garden in which was planted by God himself. Right? This garden, uh, if you read Genesis carefully, this garden was not where Adam was originally formed. Right? God didn't form him in the garden. God made him and then placed him in the garden. God had taken him from outside, placed him specifically in the garden. You see this in Genesis 2, 15, where it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now in this garden, verse 9 tells us that the tree of life was in the midst of this garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, both trees. Therefore we see God giving a command for Adam that he may eat of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that he eats from it, he will surely die. So what, do we, what have we gained from this information? Well, first of all, we see that there are two stages of vocation for Adam. Okay? And by vocation, I simply mean two callings to Adam. In stage one, Adam is created as an image bearer with image bearing responsibilities. These things are what he is to do as a man created by God. Now you fast forward, stage two, we see that man is placed in the garden and is given a specific Edenic vocation, a calling specifically uh, given to him there in the Garden of Eden. And by this, we have to see <coughs> that man's Edenic vocation was not coeval with his creation uh, calling. This, thi this distinction between man as merely a creature of God who owes God obedience Right? The distinction between that and man in covenant with God is made very clear in those distinctions. Right? This is to say that man was not born with the responsibilities that 
were given to Adam there in the garden, right? He wasn't just born to do what he was called to do in the garden. He was commissioned that in the garden. There, were, there, there was a task that God gave Adam in the garden with stipulations. He said, if you do this, you get this. And if you don't do this, this is what happens. Again, this is to say that man was not born in covenant with God at all, but was placed in covenant at the garden. Now, what is a covenant? What, what am I talking about when I say covenant? A covenant is a pact between two parties. I'm married. I have a pact with my wife. There are covenant stipulations between us, right? Uh, again, a covenant is a pact between two parties which consists of regulations or stipulations. And you notice in covenants that there are consequences that either bless or consequences that either curse or reward or punishment. Uh, the Hebrew word for covenant is bereath, which is used 275 times in scripture. And the Greek word is diathic, I guess that's how you say it, um, which is used 33 times. All this to say, it is understood that God enters into a covenant relationship with uh, man in the garden, although the word covenant is not used there, right? You'll look in Genesis and you won't find that word used there at all. Yet you see that the, uh, the descriptions of a covenant is there. Um, you see that relationship with man in the garden being that it involved regulations and stipulations, consequences and rewards and also punishments. Uh, so what was the stipulation? Well, in the garden, the, these were the stipulations. You may eat of all except for the tree of, uh, of knowledge of good and evil. Now, what then were the consequences uh, of reward or punishment? Well, it says, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this day you will surely die. So we know the punishment, but what was the reward? Well, if you follow the logic that comes from the punishment that you would die if you ate from the forbidden tree, it follows that the reward would simply be the reward of life if you are faithful to obey. Adding on to that, continuing that logic, we also see that the reward of life must also be understood in light of the fact that there was a tree of life there. Right? It's mentioned in Genesis 2.9. And here we have this mysterious tree that seems to be antithetical to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have, on the one hand, you have one tree that symbolizes death, while the other symbolizes life. And this is important because we must assume that the effects of eating the fruit of the tree of life would have resulted at least in a higher state of life than what Adam presently had before the fall. One of the ways that this is evident, that if he ate from the tree of life, um, one, of the, one of the ways that this is evident is the fact that if Adam had fully completed what he was commissioned to do, namely to multiply, to subdue, to have dominion over the world, and succeed in cultivating and keeping the garden, he would still be open to the possibility of losing dominion, slipping back into chaos, and letting evil creep back in, as it did in Genesis 3. Not only that, but Adam was also given a Sabbath day to observe. Yet it would never be ultimate rest unless the possibility of death 
and the possibility of evil going away was actually done away with. Therefore, his Sabbath observance would only serve as a pointer to a future fulfillment of an ultimate Sabbath rest, when finally all things are actually placed under the feet of God with nothing left to tend. However, this day would only be true, truly possible if creation itself were placed in a final permanent state of glorification, in which Adam would be rewarded with a permanent sealing of all that was accomplished, leaving creation with no possibility of a fall. This would be a true and ultimate Sabbath rest, that obviously when you read the story and you get to Genesis 3, it doesn't happen that way. He fails, right? <clears throat> but again, even if he were to succeed, at what point is the full consummation of all things? At what point does he arrive at uh, full dominion without, without the worry that all of it would be undone with the possibility of evil still existing? Uh, the same thing goes with the Sabbath rest. Uh, the rest that was modeled by God and given, and given to Adam um, would be no true rest until uh, there would be a final resting. And notice the language that I'm using. You can, you can pretty much parallel everything that we're saying here with the reality that we are facing today, right? Us as Christians, the church, the spiritual realities of, of Sabbath rests, um, the hope that we have for that final consummation, um, the, the, the kingdom overcoming the kingdom of Satan, uh, so on and so forth. All that was commissioned to Adam, yet he failed. And, and you can parallel that with Jesus Christ, right? The final Adam, who actually accomplishes what Adam failed to do. But again, until uh, creation was placed in a final and permanent state of glorification, in which Adam would be rewarded with a permanent sealing of it all, this, this, uh, this mission would not ever be uh, complete. This brings us back to the words in the confession. If God would decide to move beyond the natural creature-creator relationship and desire to reward his creatures with the reward of life, which we see it's, it's a reality, there's a tree of life there. If he desired to reward his creatures with the reward of life, this would require a voluntary condescension on God's part. And we see from scripture that he is pleased to do this through a covenantal framework. Having that relationship um, with those stipulations um, in order for uh, there to be a fulfillment of, uh, of a possibility of achieving re the reward of life. We're going to discuss a lot. That's a lot there. We'll talk more about it. And we'll flesh it out more. But let's go ahead and jump into paragraph two. I think it'll... Uh, it'll develop the topic further. <clears throat> Can someone read uh, paragraph two? So in this paragraph, the confession states, since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, you see that very first sentence, 
So here we have the statement that God communicates to us, at least here in this statement and also in Scripture, the federal headship of Adam over all mankind, right? Notice it's not saying since Adam brought it's himself under the curse of the law. It, it, the, the, uh, the divines there jump straight with the assumption that uh, when Adam fell, all humanity fell as well. So again, here we have, a, we have the statement communicating the federal headship of Adam over all mankind. So just as was discussed in previous chapters, through Adam's fall, all mankind inherited this guilt and corruption of nature. We see this in Romans uh, 5, uh, that in Adam all die. And as a result, man brought himself in Adam under the curse. So God cursed man for his disobedience under the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. And from here on out, um, just, just to kind of label that kind of covenant, from here on out I'll call that covenant the covenant of works. Okay, the covenant of works. <clears throat> By the way, although the covenant of works may be obvious for some people here, I should probably share a few points of uh, scripture, like scripture argumentation um, for the covenant of works. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot, but I'll have to be brief just because uh, just of time. But I think it's worth just looking at some passages that defend the uh, the, the uh, covenant of works. <clears throat> uh, first of all, many, many have argued that there is no covenant of works in the garden because the word covenant isn't used there. However, I would argue that by, by simply not seeing the word there does not imply that the concept cannot be there either. This is what they would call the word concept fallacy. Uh, the Bible itself often sees concepts in texts and then uses words that do not occur in the text being referenced to des describing those concepts. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, for example, Acts 2. Peter references in Acts 2, uh, Psalm 6, specifically verses 8 through 11. And notice particularly what he does in Acts 2, 31. I'm going to show you here on the screen. <clears throat> Peter uses words that are not even in the psalm to describe concepts from the psalm, okay? Uh, take a look at Acts 2.31. It says here, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This is, this is Peter's interpretation of Psalm 6, verses 8 through 11. Uh, Peter says here that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. But in actuality, if you go to the, the psalm, the words resurrection and Christ do not occur in the psalm. Yet Peter uses these words to describe concepts implicit in the psalm, though the terms themselves are not used explicitly by the psalmist. There are more examples like this throughout Scripture uh, where some biblical revelation sheds light to antecedent revelation, even though the words that typically describe the concept weren't used there explicitly. This is, this is very common. Uh, another argument for 
the covenant of works is to consider the words of the prophet Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 24, verses 5 through 6. Um, can someone read that passage? <clears throat> the earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed the laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Thank you. <clears throat> so here, we read that the curse, which extends to the entire earth, came about due to transgressing laws, right? Transgressed laws, violated statutes. And a broken covenant. That's what it says there. And since the earth was cursed due to Adam's sin as our representative, it was Adam who broke the covenant with God in the Garden of Eden and the effects of his covenant breaking affects those who live on the earth. <clears throat> Which is everyone is us. Um, and so here we see that the, the way that sin entered the world and corrupted all mankind here, which is obviously alluding to what happened in the garden, it's using covenantal language. Uh, everlasting covenant, transgressed laws, violated statutes, so on and so forth. <clears throat> so um, there's that. Uh, another argument for the covenant of works is to consider the words of the prophet Hosea. I think this was probably the most common uh, thing. I think most of y'all are familiar with this passage. If, you, if you've ever worked through, uh, you know, understanding covenant theology versus other forms of uh, seeing redemptive history, a lot of times this verse, is, it, it comes up, um, and it says there in Hosea 6, 7, <clears throat> where it says, but like Adam... They have transgressed the covenant. There they have uh, dealt treacherously against me. Uh, so the key thing is here, the key thing here is, like Adam, they have transgressed. Uh, I understand that the translation of this text is disputed. <clears throat> I honestly prefer the NASB specifically for this verse, uh, not because it favors my position, but we actually see that the translation, like Adam, has a long pedigree, uh, going back to at least uh, Jerome of the late 300s AD. So B.B. Warfield, <clears throat> he states that due to Jerome's translation of this text, uh, to the Christians of the West, it spoke of a covenant of God with Adam. So there's that sort of historical um, uh, example to defend that uh, that covenant relationship that Adam had with God. Uh, this, is, this is why someone like Richard Muller, who is a reformed uh, theologian, uh, says, the text indicated, as virtually all of the patristic and medieval commentators concluded, a prelapsarian covenant made by God with Adam and broke in the fall. This proves that the 17th century reformed theologians we're not the guys that invented this, this idea, um, although it was formulated um, in the 17th century. Um, and again, even, even the use of Hosea 6-7 would not have been what they would have chosen as biblical support for that concept. So anyway, throwing that out there. Uh, so I'll leave you with that. <clears throat> Hopefully that helps to at least ground this doctrine a little bit.
I, yes, please. Yeah. Bowler was a friend with Meredith Klein. Yes. Oh, okay. Which is where this concept of covenant came from. Gotcha. And there's an easier way, I think, to get to Genesis 2, 16 through 17 by looking at how Klein defines these, these treaties, these covenants. Yeah. God introduces himself. Mm -hmm. He gives a historical prologue mm -hmm. of what he has done. And then he gives the law. Mm -hmm. He gives sanctions. And then final administration of the covenant. Mm -hmm. It's all there in the 16th and 17th, except the final administration. Gotcha. So if you talk to Clyde of Newark, look Newark, they'll go back to that yeah. and say it perfectly fits yeah. these A&E treaties. Yeah. And these were the guys that developed really the 20th century understanding of what covenant theology is all about. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, so uh, I must say, however, that uh, this chapter in the confession, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about the covenant of works specifically, but this, this chapter uh, in the confession is a bit different from what you get in the Westminster uh, confession. The chapters look a little bit different. A lot of the language is carried over. There's been some things taken out, um, but you'll notice even in the title of this specific chapter when you compare it to the Westminster that the titles changed a bit. Um, the Baptist Confession um, changes uh, the title to Of the Covenant, which is singular, as opposed to covenants and just the long uh, title that the Westminster Confession has for that specific topic, which, uh, which says something about what the Baptists were trying to do there. Um, there is a stronger emphasis on the covenant of grace. They, they, it's not that they're denying the covenant of works. You see that stuff uh, seen in later uh, chapters. Um, but they're, they're working through each chapter in a way that keeps it in order. And so the big focus here is actually the covenant of grace. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there. I spoke a lot about covenant of works. Um, but the majority of this, this chapter is really about the covenant of grace, uh, which is... Which is to say that God uh, opens up a relationship with man that doesn't do away with the works, but now allows that relationship to be based on the works of someone else, right? Which is Christ. And therefore, those who enter into the covenant of grace um, are, are in there by virtue of their new covenant head, right? So covenant of works, you're under Adam. Covenant of grace, you're under Christ, who fulfilled the covenant of works for you on your behalf. Um, let, me, let me ask this question. Um, is there any confusion with, that, with those terms? Is there anything there that you feel you quite don't understand as far as uh, the concepts? There's a covenant of works, uh, and then there's a covenant of grace. Yes?
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that text. Yeah. Any other confusion? Or? I was, I was like, so is it fair to say covenant works is, is all about uh, upholding the Ten Commandments? Uh, fair statement? Or did I miss something? Yeah, well, there, yes, I would say yes, that is a fair statement. But on top of that, there's also, uh, specifically in the context of Adam, there were uh, positive laws that were added on top of the Ten Commandments, which, just to give it a name, right, we, the Ten Commandments, we can say, are, is a moral law. Um, there were other commandments that, that God added as positive laws that still uh, would have caused him to sin if he would have disobeyed it, which that's what happened, right? The tree, uh, he, ate from the, he ate the fruit that was forbidden for him to eat, and so uh, it wasn't limited to just the Ten Commandments. I've heard all kinds of things where people say, yeah, but in that act he broke the Ten Commandments. I, I don't know, possibly. Um, I, I, th I just simply think that that was a positive law that was there for that specific context. Uh, but either way, he sinned, uh, uh, he sinned morally against God by virtue of being in a covenant with God. And what he told him to do, he didn't do it. You know, uh, It's like uh, if an Israelite, uh, were not to eat, were to eat something that was forbidden for him to eat, um, and we over here as Gentiles are like, you know, it's no big deal. If that person was in covenant with God, and the covenant stipulations was that he was not to eat from it, he is sinning against God. So, but yeah, uh, Peto. Yeah. Easy. I need. Simple. Yes, thank you. Okay, <clears throat> moving along. Um, while it is true that man brought himself under a curse by breaking the covenant of works, nonetheless, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. It pleased him. He desired it. Uh, the Baptist Catechism uh, says, this question, question number 23, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer is, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. And so even those um, of the Old Testament were able to receive benefits from the covenant of grace, which wasn't even instituted yet. They were able to receive benefits by, by, uh, by the same way that we would, right? Having faith that God would come and establish that covenant, right? Uh, so the, old, the, the, the people of the Old Testament uh, saw that in the types and shadows, God was going to provide uh, a lamb. God was going to provide atonement for them. Uh, first of all, it was preached in the garden itself, right? Uh, where, the, uh, where the serpent, right, who uh, came in and tempted uh, Adam and Eve, the, the serpent uh, was cursed and was told that by the seed of the woman, his head would be bruised or his head would be crushed. So already you see uh, the gospel being preached there. Uh, the, no, this is uh, the, the serpent's, right? Satan. 
Satan's head would be crushed. Right? And so it was a prophecy that the gospel would come, and, uh, and there you see uh, hints of that gospel being spoken of even in the Old Testament. Um, Got to fast forward a little bit. <clears throat> so man failed to obtain the reward of life under the terms of the covenant of works, but it pleased the Lord to make another covenant as a means to deliver them to a state of eternal life. Rather than a covenant conditional upon perfect obedience, God makes an unconditional covenant, a covenant of grace with his elect. We see further in the paragraph that this covenant he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. Just as in the uh, Adamic covenant, or that covenant we see in, in the garden, God condescended and promised the reward of life conditioned upon perfect obedience. So God condescends and freely offers the covenant of grace, which brings life and salvation to the sinner. Now, this covenant of grace is freely offered to all. Yet, in order to receive its benefits, it does require them faith in him that they may be saved. This covenant brings eternal life by grace, not by perfect obedience. But while the covenant is unconditional, yet the covenant did, did still require Christ's perfection, uh, or perfect obedience, rather, and his atonement for sin, which is credit to us or anyone who is coming into the covenant, um, it's credited to us by faith. All that to say that by nature you're under the covenant of works by virtue of your union with Adam. But in order for you to be freed from the curse of that covenant, you enter into the new covenant by faith. This is what it means to be born again. That God uh, begins your line not with Adam, but now with Christ. You're in Christ. And uh, being in Christ is, is what it means to be under the covenant of grace. Uh, moving on, the confession states, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe, the covenant of grace is freely offered to all with the requirement of faith for salvation. However, Without the work of God in a sinner's heart, the sinner remains unwilling and unable to believe. So until God supernaturally intervenes and fulfills his promise to give the elect the spirit, they'll remain in a state of sin. And they're going to remain unwilling and unable to believe salvation. The promise of the spirit here is seen in places like Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27, which says, a new heart also I will give you. A new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a, a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So God will in his time sovereignly give his promised spirit. To the person ordained to eternal life. As a result, the Spirit himself will cause and enable them to believe in Christ unto salvation. If God offered eternal life through the covenant of grace, but he did not intervene on behalf of those ordained to receive it by uh, giving enable, uh, or enabling them to believe, the covenant of grace would remain something forever averse to them. 
And we cannot help but see God's faithfulness here in that those ordained to eternal life also receive the means by which to obtain it. Right? So this is to say that even though faith is required for you to be in the covenant of grace, to be saved, to receive salvation, faith is actually not a work. Faith is not a work. It's a disposition that God uh, gives you uh, by his grace, by his spirit. He grants you the faith. Your heart is so hard that you would not have faith if it was up to you. Yet God softens your heart. That's the nature of the new covenant, right? That he would give you a new heart. And part of that is faith in Christ. And so the way that you enter into that state of grace, that covenant of grace, is, um, is faith. Uh, that's the beauty of the covenant of grace. All right, y'all, let's go to uh, the last paragraph. Let's go to... Pa- yes, please. One of, the, one of the issues that always comes up is mm-hmm. that people, when they see works, covenant works in the covenant of grace, they, they sometimes think, or they oftentimes think, that grace was not part of the covenant of works. Right. Well, it was because God was gracious to even set up the covenants in the first place. Right. And one of the ways that theologians structure this thinking is he's got the works, you've got the covenant of works, covenant of grace, over which is the covenant of redemption, mm-hmm. which is God's gracious will to redeem man from yes. eternity past to yes. Amen. And you see that uh, even more in paragraph 3 um, with the covenant of redemption, a covenant that God made um, with himself, right? The Father and the Son uh, covenanting to save uh, a people. So, very good comments. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, Will? So, is the covenant of grace something we enter into voluntarily? Because it's, I thought that a covenant is something that God initiates with, with people and oh no. Yeah, so the covenant of grace is made with us, but only by virtue of uh, a covenant that he made with his son. So really, the covenant of grace is a covenant that he made with his son. Um, Yet those who enter into his son then then receive the benefits of the covenant of grace. So uh, as far as God being the initiator... Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say that for a covenant to be a covenant, God has to be the initiator. But, but you're absolutely right. Uh, he is the initiator. Um, he's the one that sets the terms. He's the one that sets the terms not only for himself, uh, but also on our behalf. So it's not like modern covenant, covenanting, where you sit there in a business meeting and you both are agree, agreeing on the terms, right? Uh, man doesn't sit there with God and say, look, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. Uh, this was all um, created uh, between the Father and the Son and administered to uh, his elect by virtue of their union with Christ. So, I don't know. So that's a different covenant then because Adam didn't have a choice to be under that covenant. Right. That's right. Yeah, and I would even say, in some sense, we don't have a choice either. Um, those whom, those who were given to, to Christ, all who were given to Christ, all of them are, will, will, none of them will be lost. In other words, uh, God does the choosing, even in this, this covenant. Now, when I say that there is a, uh, a requirement that you have to have faith, uh, yeah, in a sense, uh, it seems like we're cooperating, but the reality is that God is the one that's granting us the faith. Um, 
So, yeah, it's irresistible. <laughs> You're irresistibly drawn into this covenant. <laughs> and that's the truth. Uh, I'll go with you, then I'll go with Peter, and then I'll go with you. Pedo, and then I'll get you. Yeah. Yeah. Is it justification? Is it That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Appreciate that. See if I understand. Man thought. Man thought. The whole the whole covenant was the law. Right. Yeah. You know, even even though, if you pull back, you know, a few steps, it was God that that uh, uh, I don't say initiated, but it was God that uh, established that kind of covenant. So, so even, even the requirement to obey was something that was initiated by God himself. But I, I see what you're saying. You know, I just never want to, um, I never want to leave the covenants that God has had with man on the basis of man's, uh, you know, ideas or, or his, his contribution to creating it. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and I think we need to pull away from this idea that, you know, who, who sets the terms or where, where's the initiations starting. Like you said, Pito, that's not even a thing in the covenants of God. God is establishing every aspect of it um, and is requiring man to participate in that covenant. Um, and there's no question, like, they don't have a choice. You know, this is what it is. This is how God uh, has... Um, set up his relationship with man throughout redemptive history. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. It says right here in Ezekiel, and he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, friend, the feet of these slain, and they come to life. Thank you for that passage. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It is. Just imagine that. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's, uh, we only have a few minutes, so let's go ahead and read at least the uh, paragraph, see if we can interact with the last paragraph there, paragraph three, and then see what we can get out of it. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Uh, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam, the promise of Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, there's a lot to say there, So, but with the short time, I'm going to try to point out some things so that maybe you, uh, on your own, you can study uh, paragraph three uh, in, in your own time. And maybe uh, if you see me around, we can, you can pull me aside and we can talk more about um, the covenants. But I'll say this. Do you want to know the difference between us and uh, Presbyterians? <laughs> That's the chapter right there. Um, and... Uh, you'll see it where it says uh, uh, where it says the confession continues on by stating that the covenants of grace is revealed afterwards step by step um, this means that after the gospel uh, revelation to Adam in the garden it continued to be revealed after him not only did it continue after did it continue afterwards but it was revealed by farther steps the Presbyterians um, at least based off of the Westminster Confession, they see that a lot of what we see, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament as being, um, you know, like the ceremonial laws, the feasts and things of that nature, they all see that as the covenant of grace. They don't, they don't see it the way we would see it as uh, the covenant of grace being uh, that, that which was inaugurated when Jesus Christ actually came. So not to confuse you any further, but based off of that paragraph, you're going to see uh, that even though the Westminster and the Baptist Confession both have a covenantal view of Scripture, uh, they, they, there's some changes there uh, in the way that the Baptists would understand covenant theology. 
the Presbyterians, in seeing all those things of the Old Testament as the covenant of grace, uh, what, what they're basically saying is that um, through the sacrifices and through the uh, ceremonial laws, they were, uh, they were administrations of the gospel, administrations of the covenant of grace. We, based off of our confession, we would say, no, those were all covenant of works. <laughs> all of that stuff was covenant of works. All of that had covenant stipulations that were based off the, of, of the works of Israel. Uh, and by those, uh, by obedience to those things, no man is able to uh, obtain the grace of God. It was only through the gospel. Now we would, we would align with them by saying that those things were types and shadows that pointed to the gospel, but they in themselves weren't forms of administering the gospel. And so those are the distinctions. So uh, I say that to say that the reason why I'm a Baptist is not because I look in the New Testament and say, man, I don't see any verses that say we're supposed to sprinkle babies. And so that's why I have to be a Baptist. That's actually a bad way to be a Baptist. <laughs> like if you're a Baptist because you just don't see infant baptism in the New Testament, that, that's not really a good reason to be a Baptist. Now, you should be a Baptist, but you should be a Baptist based off of the outworking of how the Bible expresses these covenants, right? And so the consequences are this, that if you see all those ceremonial stuff as administrations of the, great, of, of the uh, covenant of grace, then you're going to carry that over into the New Testament because those are administrations of the covenant of grace. So things like circumcision, they get carried over. Uh, and because circumcision was given to babies, they get carried over into baptism, and now we baptize babies. You, get, you, you, have, you see what happens there. However, if you see the covenant of grace marked when Jesus himself came, died, and resurrected, when he inaugurated it, and from that point on, we start to make sense of the ordinances and the symbols that were given to the New Testament church. And so... Uh, you know, not to confuse you anymore, but I would, I would say that there is a real reason, a logical, covenantal, um, hermeneutical reason why uh, at least particular Baptists are Baptists. Um, so it's important to understand that so that you know the history of your, your identity. Um, and, and again, we, th this is just to provoke more conversation. Uh, if you see me or you see one of us, you can stop us and we can talk more about it. Um, I hope that was a good explanation of, of covenant theology and the covenant that was uh, expressed in the, in the uh, confession. Again, if there's any confusion, please, please see me afterward, um, or any time for that matter. Uh, let me conclude there, we're out of time. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you that you have been, you have chosen to condescend towards us and bring us into covenant with you on the basis of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Um, this is truly a covenant of grace, and we thank you that in, in him, we have eternal life. And so we ask that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is the substance of this covenant relationship that we have with you. Um, again, we thank you, and uh, to the glory of your Son, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all.